Outside the um, ancient city of Jerusalem long ago, there was this narrow cart path that encircled the city. And if you were going along that particular path, there would come a time when you came to a fork in the road. If you continued straight on, you would be led around the perimeter of the walls and you would gain access into the holy city uh, through what was known as the water gate. But at that particular fork in the road, you could make a different choice. If you chose, you could turn down the hill. And that particular path would take you to a very different kind of place than the life of that bustling, uh, beautiful city. Down in the valley below that path lay what was called the Valley of Hinnom. And Hinnom, which is that encircled picture or that part of the, of the map you see on the projection window, the Valley of Hinnom was a storied place in, in the life of, of ancient uh, Israel or Palestine. The northernmost area of the Valley of Hinnom, the part closest to the city walls, was frequently called Topheth. In the Aramaic or Hebrew, it literally meant the burning place, the burning place, because it was at that particular spot that tradition held that centuries before the Canaanites, the original occupiers of that land, had worshipped their god Moloch, the god of pleasure Moloch. And to satisfy the god of pleasure, they had actually burned some of their own infants to death. Later on in history, some of Israel's own kings, uh, wicked, idolatrous kings like Ahaz and uh, Manasseh, had taken on some of these practices themselves. They had actually burned their own children there in the Valley of Hinnom in the hopes of winning for themselves some kind of better life from their gods. And God had expressly condemned these detestable ways, these evil ways, practiced by not only the Canaanites, but some of the ancient Israelites. And by the time of Jesus, the Valley of Hinnom had not only these particular associations, but a fresh one as well. The city of Jerusalem had grown up dramatically since the day of the, of the Canaanites and Ahaz and Manasseh. A massive place was needed, practically speaking, to hold all of the refuse that was being created by the citizenry of that day, and this particularly abominable valley was deemed an appropriate place to put the trash. As still goes on in places like this to this day, I've seen it. Photograph from Cairo, Egypt, in this recent decade. It still goes on in massive city dumps like this to this day. Perpetual fires burn there. Why? To burn up the trash. To, to, to keep it from mounting too high. Desperate people picked through that trash. 
foraged in that trash. Packs of wild dogs, like those, in an actual trash heap today. They fought with one another over scraps of food they found there, and, and, and you could hear, I've heard them, outside the uh, trash heap in Cairo. You can hear their snarls and the gnashing of their teeth. And it's a chilling sound. These can be hellish places. People of the ancient world long posited the existence of an underworld to which the souls of the dead would go after this life. The Canaanites had actually chosen the Valley of Hinnom to do some of those sacrificial rituals because they believed that, that valleys and deep ravines were thin places. They were places where the underworld and this world were particularly close to one another. That's why they chose Hinnom, to do the blood sacrifices. It was a shorter route to the underworld, they felt. The Greeks called um, this underworld by the word Hades. The ancient Hebrews called it by the word Sheol. Sometimes either one of those cultures would use, refer to the underworld as the abyss or the pit or the grave. We find all of these terms used in the Bible in various places. Neither the Greeks nor the Hebrews were entirely sure, however, what went on in the underworld. I mean, there were theories. Some saw it as a fairly neutral place, as sort of just another way of life, a bit darker than this one. Others saw it as a place of judgment on the demigods for their, their acts. There were numbers of notions, no common agreement about the life that went on in this place. But I guess the one thing everybody did see eye to eye on, it was, it was a place you wanted to stay out of as long as possible. It wasn't a place you were in a hurry to get to. The problem, however, was that just, just as heaven was a realm which, though existing elsewhere, would break into human life with its beauty and its power in various ways, so the underworld was a place that didn't stay entirely separate from this life. In fact, it just kept sending tendrils into this present time and space, many felt. It was always, in a sense, trying to make its claim on us, uh, even in this life. It kept dragging people toward death and destruction and the darkness of the grave. Even before you died, you were being called in that direction. That was the image that really lived in the ancient times. So much so that the psalmist writes in the 18th Psalm, the cords of death entangled me, the torrents of destruction overwhelmed me, the cords of the grave, the word there is Sheol or Hades, coiled around me. You get the sense of it just trying to put its claim on you. It was Jesus who brought all of these various ideas together in a particular vision of the afterlife that has inspired furor, fear, and faithfulness throughout the ages. 
just as heaven, just as Jesus had taken the diffuse notions that people had about heaven and crystallized them into images of restored relationships, of renewed cities, of replanted gardens, just as Jesus had taken all of the different notions folks had and given them really focused content and said, this is what heaven is like. This is what the kingdom of my Father is like. So Jesus now proceeded to do with the life of the underworld. Are you following me? He took these abstract notions and focused them. And to do that, he needed a human construct, much as he had done when describing heaven in terms of cities and gardens and so forth. He needed a human construct. So he took the rather abstract notions of an underworld and he gave them this very specific, vivid image. Now, the word hell, which uh, some of us use, some of us more than often, I might add, um, is an old Anglo-Saxon word. It dates back to the 700s A.D. It was used to translate the actual Hebrew Aramaic word that was chosen by Jesus to make his point, to describe what hell was, what hell was like. And the Hebrew word is Gehenna. It's a contraction of two other words, gay meaning valley, and henna meaning hinnom. In other words, if you choose to live your life apart from God, if you choose to live your life contrary to the way of God and his heaven, you are going to go straight into a condition like the valley of Hinnom, said Jesus. Gehenna literally means the valley of Hinnom. Now, that would have been just like this huge eye-opener to people. I mean, whoa. I mean, we know what the Valley of Hinnom is like. We know what its history is. We know what's gone on there. We know how much we don't like going there. Instantly, the choice of that particular metaphor would have gotten many, many people's attention. And it would have, it would have communicated in a very powerful way how important it was to find your way into the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus described it. Because Gehenna is is the place of Moloch and his servants, uh, Jesus is effectively saying. It's, It's the place where those people who sacrifice children and women for their own pleasures, it's where they go. And Jesus was constantly trying to say to us, don't do this. Don't put the members of your body into the service of that kind of evil. Don't put the members of your family into the service of this kind of evil. Jesus says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away, because it's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fires of what? of Gehenna. Don't give your body. Don't give yourself 
to Gehenna. Sacrifice whatever you have to in this life. Cut it off. Put it away so you don't end up going to Gehenna. Gehenna, Jesus also said, is is where people go who have treasures in their hands but insist on trashing them. Why do people go to junkyards? They hope to find somebody else's trash that is actually your treasure. Gehenna is for folks who have taken what was treasure and trashed it. God gave you talents to use. He gave you extraordinary gifts and capacities he intended you to use in the service of his kingdom, Jesus says. Some of you are disposing of those selfishly, he said to his contemporaries. You're taking the talents that the master has given you for his kingdom's purposes and you're hiding them away for your own. To you, the master will say, take the talent from him. Take the talent from him who buried it. Give it to the one who invested his talent well and throw that worthless service outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gehenna is also that place for people who apparently like perpetual burning. So much so that they have begun burning themselves in this life. Some of you regularly allow your passions to flame out of control, Jesus said in effect to the people of his day. You routinely torch your brother or your sister without any thought of the consequences And I tell you that anyone who is angry, and the word that's used for anger there is wrath or rage, anyone who is angry with your brother will be subject to to judgment, and anyone who says, you fool, which was a, you raka, which was a particularly vile, contemptuous condemnation towards someone else, anyone who says this will be in danger of the fire of what? Of Gehenna. Gehenna is also the proper place for people who behave like wild dogs, Jesus tells us. Some of you are spending your energies gnashing your teeth and fighting with other people over what amount to scraps instead of meeting the needs of people. And if you keep it up, says Jesus, then God will say, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire. Go to the junkyard. If that's, where you, that's what you're a wild dog, just go there. God will say this, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. Why? You were chasing after the scraps. Gehenna is also for religious people who claim to know God who claim to know the character of God, but whose form of piety 
is mainly to sink their fangs into other people. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Gehenna is the destination for all who expect to feast at the banquet of heaven, but who are actually unwilling to make any substantial change in their attitude or their attire in order to get ready for the banquet. Thus Jesus said, and he told a parable describing a king who threw a great banquet, but when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? How did you get in here without having attired yourself, prepared yourself, opened your, aligned yourself in some way with what this whole event is about? How did you get in here? And the man was speechless. The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the portrait that Jesus gives us of Gehenna. It's the burning place. It's the trash heap. It's the spot where the residents snarl and scrap over everything. Hell is the present spiritual condition and the future home of those who sacrifice others for their pleasure, who treat the treasures and talents God has given them as disposable any way they personally choose, who let their passions burn unchecked and injure others with them, who scrap for self while ignoring the needs of others, who claim to know God but sink their fangs into the children of God, who expect a heavenly feast without changing in any serious way to fit themselves for it. In short, Gehenna, Gehenna is the life and the future for those who turn away from God and everything his kingdom stands for. Do you see the common theme here? Does everybody need to take a deep breath for a second because this has gotten heavy? No place is the central idea more powerfully and pointedly portrayed for us than in the parable Jesus tells in Luke chapter 16. And and this is what Jesus says. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus who was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. He'd have taken crumbs, but he was given nothing. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Even the dogs rendered some act of mercy and kindness to him. 
some relief, but the rich man, who was the opposite of a dog, he was a god in his world. He did nothing. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. He, the angels took him to that heaven where the souls of the faithful go. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side, and so he called to him. He said, Father Abraham, I'm so sorry I lived my life with so little humility. I'm so sorry I lived my life with so little love except for my own people. No wonder I'm in hell now. My life was hellish. I can see that now in contrast to what heaven is like. I spent my life in aligning my heart with hell instead of aligning my heart with God's heart and the way of his heaven. What was I thinking, Father Abraham? This isn't the conversation at all. That's not at all what happened. That wasn't his prayer. This is how the story actually goes. Father Abraham, said the rich man, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. Because can't you see, I'm in agony down here. I am in agony in this fire. And Abraham says no. And the rich man counters by saying, okay, then send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come also to this place of torment. Do you see how deep the man's problem is? Do you see how locked in he is? Even in hell, he sits there expecting service for himself. And his greatest act of compassion is to think of rendering service to his own family. Listen very carefully. Those who wind up in Gehenna may travel toward it on different cart paths. But they always, always take the same fork. Every day they have opportunities to choose the path of self-giving love that is the way of heaven. They have almost endless chances to show that they know that they depend upon the grace of God for life for life here, for life in the hereafter. And the evidence, the evidence that they know this, that they know how much they need the grace of God will be the grace that they naturally show towards other people. But those who are hellbound, whether human beings or Satan and his demons, will not get this. They will not get this understanding 
An artist once depicted hell as a magnificent table set with a mouth-watering feast. And around the table sat people with strangely sunken faces, with hollow eye sockets, with bloating bellies, the unmistakable signs of starvation. They're starving as they sit at the feast. And, and to the arm of each one of these people is splinted this very long fork. In fact, it, it, it is so long that it is impossible for them to dish up food and get the fork back around and go into their own mouths. It's just impossible to pull that off. And so there they sit, perpetually entranced by this amazing banquet, this wonderful feast. And there they sit, eternally starving, because it never occurs to them that if they would only take the fork and use it to put food in somebody else's mouth, everybody would get full. Jesus said, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. It is not hard to get into that kingdom. <laughs> it's not. Jesus shows us in all of his teaching how ready the kingdom of heaven is to receive us. You just have to know that you can't save yourself. Right? You just got to know that. That it's not going to be your good deeds and how impressive you are. You just have to know that. You have to know that you're lost without God's grace. You just have to be humbly thankful that, that God has extended his long fork toward you. That's a really long one. It's got a cross-shaped handle, but he's extended it toward everybody. And the sign that you do actually know this is the way you use your fork. Right? It's just as simple as that. It's, it's an idea that could be understood in any culture, I think. In any time and place, by little children and old men. Jesus tells us that the kingdoms of heaven and of hell begin right here. The way of grace or the way of Gehenna, these are choices we're making all the time. C.S. Lewis said we're all day long helping each other to one or the other of those destinations. We want to choose the right fork now. Because the Bible teaches that there is another kind of fork that still lies ahead. God's winnowing fork is in his hand, says the Bible. He will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Blessed are those who may go through the gates into the city 
says Jesus in the book of Revelation. For outside are the dogs. We don't know literally what kind of hell awakes. Okay? Dante Alighieri, Hollywood directors, they filled our minds with all kinds of images. Even Jesus, in speaking of Gehenna, is probably only speaking in simile and metaphor. It's something like the Valley of Hinnom is the big idea. It is a place to be avoided. What does that mean for people who have never even heard of Jesus? What does that What does that reality mean for those friends or family members we have who have gotten lost, not found their way, or died too young before they really got the the grasp of the kingdom of heaven? Could a loving God purposely send somebody to an everlasting hell? That's a great question. And it's going to be our focus when we gather here again next week. Please pray with me. Lord, you told us that it is not your desire that even one child should be lost. And confessing, Lord God, the evidence of lostness we find sometimes in our own lives and see in the world around us, We ask you, Lord, to keep before us, to to brighten our focus on the kingdom of your heaven. Thank you that you have so graciously invited all of us into it. And we pray especially, Lord God, today for those whom we know. And maybe, Lord, even for that part of ourselves that seems bound for the wrong place at the fork. Work by your spirit, we pray, to renew us, to reclaim those who have wandered, to find those who are truly lost, that we may join together around that great banquet table and feed abundantly upon your grace without end. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.